The views expressed on this special broadcast of the Take 12 radio show do not necessarily reflect those of KHLT Recovery Broadcasting or its affiliates. KHLT is not affiliated with any particular 12-step fellowship. A very scary experience. God is a solution. God is 12-step. I like where he's going here. Helps the community grow, helps us grow. Bonnie Bonnie has done a phenomenal job. Lack of open-mindedness. And you're talking about taking people through a spiritual process and getting them into recovery. Thanks, Monty, uh, and thanks for all your support. We need spirituality to make this thing work long-term. It's an absolute pleasure. He certainly knows a lot of people. This is one of the places... It is about the business of the solution. And now, broadcasting on location somewhere in the vast expanse of the Pacific Northwest, it's the over-opinionated 12-stepologist, the Monty Man. That's right, I am here for you here at Take12Radio.com on your internet dial. Uh, listen, there are several ways to listen to the show. You can uh, click on the Listen Online button on our website at Take12Radio.com. You can click on the Watch Online, take you to our YouTube version. You can click on the Archives link, or you can click on the Follow Us on Podomatic. That's the way we'd really like you to do it. Uh, once you become a member of Podomatic, it's for fun and for free. They'll never spam you. We will never bother you except for to let you know when there's a new show updated. And uh, there you can like the show. You can comment on the show. It doesn't cost you a penny to do it. And if you will click like or follow, that will help us with our demographics on uh, Podomatic. Well, listen, let me, let me ask you guys something. When you look in the mirror, who do you see? Do you see somebody... That, that you're proud of, that is accomplishing the things in life that, that you want to accomplish and, and has goals. And even if you're not there yet, you're pretty pleased with, with the direction that you're moving. Or do you see somebody like I have in the past that I was disappointed with, that I was ashamed of, that I was fear, even fearful of, and maybe somebody that, that, that other people have been scolding for a long time. You're a loser. You're really not going to measure up, that kind of thing. Uh, if you've experienced that, and I'm sure most of us have at one time or another, uh, you could be in deep weeds if you stay in that mindset. We know, and we've talked about it before on this show, about negative, negative self-talk, and we're going to be talking about more of that today. Uh, my guest is the author of a book called The Science of Shame and Its Treatment. Let me just tell you a little bit about him. Years of clinical practice and extensive research provided the background for his new release, The Science of Shame and Its Treatment. My guest, Dr. Gerald Lauren Fishkin, earned his Ph.D. in clinical psychology and has been in private practice since 1970. He has authored three other books, including American Dream, American Burnout, How to Cope When It All Gets to Be Too Much, Police Burnout, and Firefighter and Paramedic Burnout. An expert in clinical and forensic 
uh, hypnosis, Dr. Fishkin has worked with witnesses of violent crimes in scene reconstruction, as well as aided in suspect identification. Our guest has also appeared on hundreds of nationally syndicated radio and television shows and has authored this wonderful book. Dr. Fishkin, welcome to Take 12 Radio. Bonnie, thank you so much for having me today. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's it's a pleasure. I know you have a very busy schedule, and to take time to, to be with us to share the science of shame is so vitally important for so many of my listeners because, uh, quite frankly, our listener base are people in recovery, advocates of, and friends and family members of. And within the recovery community, as well as those that are in need of recovery, shame is huge, true? Correct. And and it's it, it really, this whole notion of shame does come from the recovery 12-step world. As a young psychologist, I, never, I was never trained in shame. Shame was never part of the curriculum. In fact, I had a patient about eight years ago start telling me about her shame-based behavior, and honestly, I didn't know what the hell she was talking about. I, 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 I was shocked and stunned, and, and she's going on, but she was a social worker, and, and, uh, and as time went on, I began to understand how shame becomes so relevant, but it's not been a, a uh, part of the vocabulary or the, or the, the lingo in psychology. And, uh, but it plays, interestingly, it plays a bigger part in psychology and in therapy or in our emotional life than any of the other factors I, I, I work with. So, yes, it's extremely important. Uh, people in recovery have it. They have more of it. People who are practicing their addictions have more of it because um, it's just what happens with, with, with addictions and how it works on our brain and how it causes us to be a sh- what I call a shell uh, uh, existence uh, in terms of how we are. We're not really being our authentic self. We're only a shadow of that self when we're, you know, practicing our addictions and not really uh, getting a hold of uh, our, our sense of self and self-worth. Now, now, you say this could actually be the root cause of escalating numbers of addictions and mood disorders, true? I, I, I actually, uh, Monty, let, let me put it this way. Yeah. 100% of the people in the world have shame because shame is a is, is, part, is a structure in the brain. It lives in the basal ganglia of the brain around the limbic system, right above the limbic system and all around it. So it's part of the earliest uh, memory, if you, if you will, of uh, kids that grow up with abuse, uh, neglect, abandonment, or any kind of toxic uh, trauma, because unprocessed trauma is the root of shame uh, or shame-based behavior. But 100% of the people in the world have shame. And with addictions, but not everybody is going to have shame-based behavior. Right. But people with addictions, uh, 100% of the time, have shame-based behavior. I got it. I got it, yeah. Yeah, and you know what that means. What that means is they're not living an authentic life. They're living a shadow existence. They're, They're practicing or chasing the high or chasing the buzz. Whatever it is, it's kind of like being stuck with a heart and lung machine. Whatever their drug uh, of, of addiction is, that's what they're going to need to survive. You, you know, I remember when I was the 30-day wonder when it came to, uh, to relapse. I, I went through that phase. Uh, many people do. Uh, and I would do things like I would disappear for days, and then I would 
parked in front of our home, wishing upon all wishes that my wife would come out and get me. But I was so ashamed and so full of fear and shame, I, I, I was paralyzed by it. I, I couldn't get out of the car and walk in the front door. Right. So, you, you, again, you couldn't, which means that you were not living your authentic self. You right. Were, you were, you know, living a fiction of that self, but all the while knew that you were stuck. Yeah. That were, were not your, the practice of your shame-based behavior. You'd be able to live an authentic life, but you, 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 we can't be authentic when we're in the middle of an addiction. Now, now you mentioned the word trauma, and, and, and that is something that in, in a lot of the circles that I, that I travel in has, has been a, a real buzzword. I mean, people have been talking about it a lot in the last few years. Um, is trauma and shame the same thing? They are associated, and, and okay. let me tell you how it's associated in my in in my view. Um, when we're talking about trauma or traumatic events, we're talking about things that affect one's sense of self, hmm. and by that I mean one sense of safety, security, one sense of self-love or love from others, and anything that gets in the way of that for an, a, a child, uh, an infant, a child, a young adult is traumatic. In other words, they never feel safe. So trauma is something about what happens to our sense of, of safety and security when we're confronted with a situation that's horrific. So trauma is at the I believe trauma is at the root of all uh, early addictions, without question. Because every, every patient that I have that has an addiction had early life abuse, trauma, neglect, abandonment, uh, and uh, they all show high high correlations and a high relationship to shame. Yeah, yeah, I I know that that some years ago we believed that trauma was at the root of of much of this, and now we really, the experts really believe it's a hundred percent. And and I I tend to to agree with that. Um, what is the difference between guilt and shame? Because I know listeners are thinking that right now. You think they are? Well, yeah, let me yeah. tell you, there's a huge difference. And by the time I'm finished with this, nobody should ever use the term guilt and shame at the, you know, in the same statement. Because yeah. They are totally different. Shame is what we call an affective reaction to a, a perceived attack to oneself. By that, I mean, what is affect? Affect is, is a pre-emotion. We know what the emotions are, right? Right. Happiness, sadness, depression, joy, blah, you know, all of that. Fear. Fear is, a, is an emotion. But shame is an affect. It's kind of like a pre-emotion, okay? It, uh, and affects uh, have many different... Um, therapists and, psych and researchers have many different ideas about what an affect is. But to me, shame is an affect. There are two affects. One is shame and one is compassion. But it's an affect, and when, when an infant perceives an attack to oneself, that's shame. Affects are like pre-emotions, as I said. They're a sense of something happening to us, but are not associated with cognition or thinking. So if they're at a pre-verbal level, and at the precise second that shame is triggered, uh, we want to disappear, become invisible, anonymous. But it's not a cognitive thought reaction. In other words, you can't protect yourself from it by thinking. 
So at that moment that our sense of self is wounded or rewounded, it is at that precise moment that we're emotionally hijacked. And by that I mean there's no cognition or cognitive component to a shame attack. It's entirely affective and automatic. We are held captive by the attack, which reinforces exactly how we feel about ourselves. So I call these affective signatures because they're the same over and over and over. You know when you have a shame attack, Monty, you feel the same thing over and over and over. Because of the repetitive nature of the reactions, they are like a signature. Guilt, on the other hand, is entirely cognitive. And it's, def- it, it's a definable reaction to the breaking or breach of a learned value. I think it requires thought and action. We know that if we steal something, we could be punished. We know that if we hurt somebody, someone, there are negative consequences. So whenever we do something wrong, typically, healthy people fear discovery and experience anxiety. So guilt triggers the sympathetic part of our central nervous system that causes adrenaline and sweating and all of that. So, And we can measure guilt to a large extent using physiological measures such as a polygraph. So the polygraph measures things like GSR, galvanic skin response, heart rate, respiration. They're all autonomic reactions. They're not under volitional control. So there's no such thing as a measure for shame. So Mm. shame is always about our sense of self and who we think we are, and guilt is always about something we've done or thought about doing. Does that make sense? Yes, Yes. Good. Yes. It, okay. Yes, it does. Uh, that, One thank is you. at a very base level that does not require thought, and that's shame, and that's automatic. And 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 guilt, on the oh. other hand, requires thinking and and learning and all of that stuff, and it's it, it's quite cognitive in nature. So they're entirely different. You can, we can't say guilt and shame in the same in the same uh, with the same voice because we're in the same breath because they're not the same. We're going to take our first break, and when we come back, I want to ask you uh, a question. I want to give you an example uh, uh, and see if I'm correct on um, on this guilt and shame thing. Folks, don't sure. go away. More with my, my guest, uh, Gerald Fishkin, Ph.D., author of The Science of Shame and Its Treatment. Uh, please write this down. The website is www.com. Dr. Dr. That's Dr. Gerald F. Excuse me. Excuse me. GeraldFishkin.com. So that's D-R-G-E-R-A-L-D-F-I-S-H-K-I-N.com. You can follow the links right here at Take 12 Radio. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Free by the Sea is a drug and alcohol recovery center located in beautiful Ocean Park, Washington. This facility is amazingly gorgeous, but what's even more amazing is the integrity of the staff and the treatment provided for those wishing to recover from narcotic and alcohol addiction. The folks at Free by the Sea have a passion for presenting the solution to addiction for you or your loved one. To speak with an admission specialist, visit FreeByTheSea.com or call toll-free 800-272-9199. This place is simply amazing. Welcome back to the show. Our guest this week is a man who uh, understands what I believe to be one of the primary causes uh, for relapse and uh, drug and alcohol uh, abuse in our world today, and that's uh, shame. His book is The Science of Shame and Its Treatment. The author, our guest, Gerald Lauren Fishkin, Ph.D. Uh, Doctor, now, um, I'm thinking of a... 
when I was thinking of guilt and shame, I was thinking about a, a young boy. He's playing in the in the playground with his buddies, and he loses control of of his uh, urinary tract and and wets himself. And he's standing there, and all the kids are like pointing at him and laughing at him and that kind of thing. Uh, that is that shame that he's feeling. Oh, without question, that shame. Yeah, yeah, that's but definitely not guilt. Shame. Yeah, and that's again, that's not guilt. What does he have? What did he break a value? No, no. He, had a, he 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 wet himself, and kids are brutal with one another. Yes, and that that leads to trauma. And that child, unless that trauma is resolved, because this happens over and over, Monty, it happens throughout the world. Because a hundred percent of the people in the world have shame. Yeah, you can go to the deepest jungle and find uh, shame. You can go to the queen's court and find shame. It's all there. And when something happens to a child like that, if that child isn't nurtured immediately and told he's okay, it was just an accident, he'll get over it, it may not happen again, but he has to feel good about himself. If he takes that into his brain or into his world automatically, like, I'm no good, I'm a weenie, I can't control myself, he may go on and have other, uh, ex- other experiences like that where he wets himself in public and, and gets into shaming behavior. If he's controlled and held, helped through that, that traumatic reaction, in other words, remember what I said earlier, unprocessed trauma leads to shame. So if that trauma gets can be processed and talked through in the in the in the caring loving arms of his of his mom and dad or a family member, he more than likely is going to get over it, and it'll just be an experience like all of our other experiences in life. And I can tell you a couple that I've had, and I might that that shamed me, but uh, so that's really what happens. You know, we want to make sure because shame is always about the sense of self that that child has a good sense of self, but can understand that accidents happen and he can get past it. And as he grows and develops, it'll just be like a little blip in the, in the whole screen of life. So, so is, is this something, because you said, you said several times, <coughs> excuse me, that, we're, that everybody has this. Is, is this something we're born with? Yes, we're born with the potential, Monty, just as we're born with the potential to have hearing and vision, Right, they come from yeah. parts of our brain. We have the same potential to have shame. In other words, <clears throat> it's built into the brain in the basal ganglia. It's part of the brain, and it's just being understood now. Believe it or not, it's just being found out now. And my book is the first one to put it all together, so that our, our you know, my patients, the people that come to me, the people in the world who don't, we can read about the, this, this these experiences know that we can't treat shame, and we'll get to treatment later, I'm sure, but we can't treat shame the way we would treat something else. In other words, we can't treat it like we would treat a guilt reaction, if you will, like a guy who, you know, went out on his wife and, and you broke a marital vow and all that. That's, mm-hmm. that's where you get the guilt stuff. Shame is at a much deeper level. Okay, now... Shame, now- shame would be a child who has you know, late, let's say gay leanings, and very early in life, and he doesn't know what's going on with him, and he's trying to process it and process it, but he knows something is different about him. Right. So as a boy child who likes playing with, you know, dresses, or he likes looking at 
girly things, if you will. I, I, I hate to be sex typing, but right. you know that child often grows up with the shame. I treat a lot of gay and lesbian folks, and I love them all to death, and everybody is the same in my book. I don't differentiate because I have a very gay-friendly practice. But there are many of these people that I treat as adults who say, Doc, I've never talked about this before, but I had this shaming experience when I was a child. You know, somebody, you know, the neighbor, the, the boy neighbor next door, uh, you know, had sex with me. He was babysitting me, and then he, he, he manipulated me or did something. And, you know, the, the individuals often carry this around forever. Yeah. Forever. And yeah. cognitive behavioral therapy doesn't get rid of it. Because it, you no. can't convince somebody not to feel a certain way or think a certain way. You can't do it. They have to ex- we have to extirpate it like we would a tumor. Get in, talk about it, look at it for what it is, and, and move past it. There are many clinical ways of doing that with compassion-based therapy and imagery and guided imagery and many different ways, but in the manipulative way that we would with cognitive behavioral therapy because it doesn't work. And that is where we lose about 33% of our patients because we're trying to treat everybody with the same clinical process. And it, that's, again, one of the reasons I, I, I was compelled to write this book. I started to think, you know, over the years, why do I get to a certain place with my addictive patients and then they bolt, they leave therapy um, mm. unceremoniously, they'll just leave, they can't deal with it. And now I understand why. So over the last four years, my retention rate is about 95%, because I'm not trying to convince somebody that they, you know, that it changed their cognition about what happened. Right. We're trying to deal with it, let them open up and express it, like a wound first seeing the light of day. It's interesting that, that you, when you talk about uh, losing them at a certain point, I, I know that in the 12-step process, we lose people, uh, ones that are actually working you know, the steps and they're doing the writing and so forth. We lose right. most, most people at either step four, which is where they begin to take a look at themselves. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. And, and at step nine, where they have to do, you know, person-to-person amendment. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And so this just makes total sense. You see, I love the 12th step because it's the power of the group. But the problem with 12th step, especially um, most 12th step programs, is that the, the recidivism rate, the fallout rate, is about 93%. I look at the national. State. Yes, you're right. Yes. So we're losing a lot. I think we're losing a lot because. You know, we're not getting to the to the root cause. A person can make their statement, you know, I, this is what's going on with me, blah, blah, but there's no direct uh, <coughs> feedback, no digging, no no get, getting right. that tumor extricated, you know? Yeah. Very surfacy. It's very surf- and, surfacy, yes. Yeah, yeah. And that's that, that's the problem that I have with with that. It's uh, I, I'm not going to even get into the 12-step and... And try right. to you know change that because it's perfect just the way it is all over the world, but I think that there there is a shortcoming in that. Oftentimes, twelve step is the first step for people to to recognize the problem, especially if they're trying to get into recovery. Then they should seek a therapist who does compassion based treatment, and not you know and not try to work at the same old saw because it's not one size. Fits you bet. All. You bet. And I... It always has. You know, Monty, it always has been. Yes. It's been that way for the last forty years. And uh, and I think that's wrong, and I think we have to we have to realize that in my profession and in, in the healing arts and, and 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 begin to make some positive changes. 
For instance, uh, in Sweden and in the Netherlands, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is being thrown out. In fact, the governments are being sued and insurance companies are being sued because it's the only thing that gets paid for is CBT. Oh, boy. And, well, that's bad. That's <laughs> bad. That That's very bad. Yeah, so, bad. so, so let me... Say that's bad. Let, let me comment on this 12-step thing, and then we'll move beyond that. Yeah, sure. Um, um, one of the things that I, I know that happens a lot is, is within the 12-step, where I and I do a lot of traveling, uh, and, and so I do a lot of sitting back and, and listening uh, to see where I could be at maximum service. Um, and what I found is that the majority of people, uh, probably, I'm going to get email on this, but the majority of people that I've come in contact with don't know their own literature. Because in the literature of your, your, your mainstream 12-step fellowships, it always tells us that we may need to seek outside help, that we may need to use other pieces of literature. Um, but we don't want to read that part. We don't want to look at that because we think it is one size fits all. And you're absolutely correct. We're doing people, uh, uh an injustice by telling them that. Um, so I just want to make that comment to my fellow 12 steppers cause I'm a 12 stepper, but I, I really believe adhering to the book and not to the, to, to what's said in the meetings, because a lot of times you're not going to hear what's in the book. You're just going to hear people's opinions. And, 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 and the right. founders were very in favor very much in favor of getting outside help that we cannot treat at all. And uh, but, but for many people, Monty, that don't have the the, the resources, financial right. or or even the physical resources. In other words, they may be out in the middle of the boondocks somewhere, or I live on a hill, or living yeah. in the middle of a you know a valley somewhere. Is that uh, is that the, 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 for many people, twelve step is, is a great thing because it is the first step. It is the first step to recovery if they stay with it. And yes, yeah. there are many different modalities that can be employed, but twelve step is not the only one. And you know, I've done hundreds of shows, and you're the first one to really advocate or really uh, uh, bring this to a higher level. The the notion that we need more than just uh, going to a twelve step meet, just more than just going to meetings. That for some people, we have to get take this to another level. Absolutely. And, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I wholeheartedly agree and I wholeheartedly get email about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope we get a lot. Of, I hope you get a, we get a lot of email about it because it's the truth. And, you it know, is. when you have the truth, uh, it, it stands on its own. And I think the truth always does. Yep. Actually. Yep. It sure does. So let, let's 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 talk about treatment for a minute. I, I want to talk about the treatment for this. But before we do that, uh, I, I, I want to ask you about uh are, are expressed to you my concern in today's treatment facilities. Uh, something that I've noticed, because I work in one, and something that I've noticed, uh, and it isn't hard to spot, it, is there's a lot of shame-based practicing going on, you know, behavioral stuff. Uh, you know, so you, do, you don't make your bed like it's supposed yeah. to be made. So they're going to rip the sheets off of it, make you make it again. Until it's until you can bounce a quarter off of it, uh, you got to wear it. one treatment center. Actually, they still practice this. They put a sign around your neck that says, "I'm an idiot." If you don't understand something, or if you didn't read your homework, you know things like that. And I'm thinking to myself, we got to do better than that. Come on, right, Monty? We have to do much better than that. There's so much personal shaming going on. 
to try to get people to kind of act a certain way or conform. Yeah. Shame is built into our brain for a certain reason. I really believe this, Monty. I think it's built into our brain to keep us appropriate. You know, more important than guilt, nobody needs to be living a guilty life, nor nobody needs to be living a shame-based life. So shame, you know, there's healthy shame. I'm often asked, and I'm sure you were going to ask me, Doc, is there healthy, healthy shame? Let me, yeah. let, let me jump the gun. Monty, there is healthy shame. Yes. Healthy shame is, it keeps us on the straight and narrow. It keeps me from using bad words when I'm on the air. It keeps me from making a fool of myself. It keeps my, my impulses in check, so to speak. So because I, I, you know, I am a social person and I am a, a person that, you know, I hold myself in high regard, you know, not unrealistically, but, you know, I don't do things, I don't go out of my way to make an idiot of myself or to shame myself in public, but there are many people who do. And, and I think that, so shame is a good, can be a good thing. It can be very valuable to us. It keeps us on the straight and narrow, uh, unhealthy shame, of course, is what we're really talking about and how mm-hmm. that results from the early life trauma, abuse, neglect, violence, and, 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 and all those traumas that are very hard, impossible for a child to, to resolve on their own. Yeah. Really impossible. Yeah. One of the, one of the uh, earlier, earlier treatment centers uh, years ago, uh, what they would do, it was, it, the center was focused primarily on quitting smoking. And what they would do is they'd put a rubber band around your wrist, and every time you felt the urge to smoke, you were supposed to snap that rubber band. Right. And, and I'm like, are you serious? I mean, I I don't know that that ever worked. Uh, another thing that they do is they put a they put a, a literally a bucket around your uh, neck, and it's below you, and then you're told to drink, you know, an enormous amount of alcohol, and then you throw up all day long. I mean, I I can't believe that kind of stuff is still going on in the year 2016. I, Monty, I am shocked to hear that, but I, I it doesn't surprise. Me. You know, there's a lot of shaming that goes on in rehab centers under the guise of treatment. For instance, the rubber band snapping. That's t- you know that's that, that's uh, aversive conditioning. You know, that's right. pain, and you know, we don't grow from pain. We don't. We don't gain anything from pain. All we get is pain. Yeah. So uh, there's no relearning going on there either. You know, there's no social learning. There's no uh, any learning other than to hurt yourself. And that's what it comes down to many times is, is to hurt yourself. So, so shame has been the elephant in the room because of itself, right? <laughs> shame has always been the elephant in the corner of the clinical uh, room. It's always been there, and we've never addressed it. Well, my goal with this book and with all of the media attention that we're getting uh, is to turn that around, is to make that the most important thing we can look at because it, 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 it identifies and it associates with and it communicates deeper stuff that we're just not getting in, in the daily clinical hour for the most part, and we're losing more patients then we're retaining, and that's a shame. You bet. Yeah, that's a shame. That's, <laughs> yeah that's you terrible. bet. <laughs> did I say that? Yes. Yes, yes, uh, you and, did. That's a, and that's terrible. That's really terrible. <laughs> when somebody, somebody comes to us, and they, you know, a big part of therapy is about trust, right? Yes. And what, we, what I find is that shame-based people don't have trust, because the initial people that should have 
protected them weren't there to protect them. And trust comes from that early bonding experience with oxytocin and, and all of that. Um, you know, the chemical that warms us, we call it the bonding uh, drug or the bonding hormone. It's oxytocin. It's emitted from the posterior pituitary. And it, it happens when you're looking at somebody and your, your eyes, get, you know, cross and you're looking at each other and you feel something. I get it with my wife, my dog. I get it with my patients. I get it all the time. I'm, I'm just a big bundle of oxytocin. <laughs> <laughs> and I do, you know, at the end of the day, I do feel good and I do love my patients and we do make progress because I'm not treating them like a, I'm not manipulating them. We're dealing at the level of love and trust. And trust is essential. And, you know, if I don't make any other point today but to say that when early life, these early life traumas happen and trust doesn't develop, that is the, that's the seed, the essence of what we have to fix. That's what we have to rebuild in the therapeutic hours. We have to help restore trust. It can be built. It can be built, but it takes time. It takes time. Uh, the book, yeah, and a lot of therapists don't want to spend the time. They want to deal with, oh, well, I'm going to help you change your thought about this. Nah, that's baloney. That's, that doesn't work. Yeah. That's manipulation. That's false hope, and that's not okay. With, with the people that I work with in the facility that, that I am employed by, uh, one of the things, I'm not the most popular guy in the bag. Let's put it that way, because I, <laughs> I, I told them I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be doing some things that, maybe a little different than them. And, uh, you know, one of, one of the things that I tell the guys is, is look at, you know, your, your perception of whatever's going on is your reality. It's your reality. I, I get it, you know, it, real or imagined. And nobody should invalidate that. You know, you, you need to be told, yeah, I, I get it. Or, or in my case, a lot of times I use two words or three words. Yeah, me too. Me too. Exactly. Um, it, you know, you you form this 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 base of trust and and, and mutual compassion with each other. Um, you know, you know, I, I tell them all the time. Look, I'm the guy. I'm not the staff members. You know, I'm not them. I'm on staff, but I'm not a staff member. You're safe with me. If you need to drop the f bomb, you can drop the f bomb. <laughs> I'm not going to go turn you in, and they're going to make you right on the chalkboard a million times, I shall not drop the F-bomb. I mean... Because that's shame. That's shame. Yeah, that's ridiculous. That's, and, and, yes. and, and so, But um, I, I want to talk to you about um, about the treatment for this. So we're going to take a break, and when we come back, um, there's really good news, right? Oh, there's great news. Yeah, yeah. So, it's folks... Better news. <laughs> folks, uh, don't go away. The book is The Science of Shame and Its Treatment by Gerald Lauren Fishkin, Ph.D. And you can follow the links here at Take 12 Radio. Or you can go to www.drgerald.fishkin.com. Write it down, bookmark it. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Serene Scene Magazine is published for individuals who are seeking knowledge, support, and hope. Addiction is a systemic problem, and the content of Serene Scene reflects the complexity of putting addiction into remission with special attention given to the loved ones of the addict. And now, here's Andrew Martin, Editor-in-Chief for Serene Scene. I'm Andrew Martin, creator of Serene Scene Magazine. The whole purpose of Serene Scene Magazine is to help people help themselves to a long-term quality lifestyle of recovery. Please have a look at some of the technological features that it has, 
the audio files and the video files that are incorporated into the publication as well. I hope you have fun with it, and I hope there's something there for you. Serene Scene, a magazine for long-term healthy lifestyles of recovery. Visit www.serenescenemagazine.com and subscribe today. He's insane. He's a control freak. So, what's your point? It's the Monty Man at Take12Radio.com on your internet dial. Well, welcome back to the show. Our guest this week is Dr. Gerald Fishkin. Uh, his book, The Science of Shame and Its Treatment, uh, we're talking about shame. Uh, now, we've been talking a lot about some of the issues and problems and, 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 quite frankly, the disabling effects that shame can have on people. Um, but there's good news. There's a way to treat this. This is not something that's not... Uh, you know, untreatable. It is treatable. So, so doctor, tell us, where do we start? Uh, we start with making an appointment. Hey. <laughs> hey. We start with finding a therapist that doesn't just do cognitive behavioral therapy, that does what I call, what we call compassion, compassion-based relational therapy. And that means the goal here is to reduce the shame effects, and that requires... Uh, Desensitization. Uh, What is compassion training? Well, I break down compassion as being two things. Um, We have to have empathy. Uh, Compassion is two things. If you can think of uh, compassion as two things, one is empathy and the other one is attunement. So the therapist during the therapeutic hour has to be with you. They have to be willing to take this journey with you. and, and, and compassion-based therapy is relational from 12-step programs. It's helping the patient address the original violators through letter writing, guided imagery with confrontation at and toward the abuser, real or imagined. We use hypnosis, extensive history taking. Frequently, Monty, these early life wounds to the self and abuses and traumas present with a very strong component of PTSD. So we're really... When you look at it, this is a lot of this is, is post-traumatic stress. Uh, and so we're going to do debriefings. They, uh, they, the problem also, typically, with people in, in, in recovery, uh, these disorders uh, typically present themselves, especially the shame-based stuff, as comorbid or dual-diagnosed with mood and addiction issues. So what we really want to do is get the patient to, maybe for the first time, open up about what happened to them when. And, again, it, it's kind of like finding gold. You know, you, 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 you provide the environment, and it may be two or three months before they open up and say, no, this is what happened to me, this is really what happened to me, and I've never said to anybody before, but, you know, my, my, my stepfather sexually abused me. Um, I, I hear this over yes. and over. Some power figure in their early life you know, acted out their power on an innocent um, child and and forever wounding that child until that child is able to, if that child is capable of getting treatment. And so for the first time, they're going to open up about what happened. 
but but compassion-based therapy is a different way of approaching uh, the treatment with a person. It's a different way of sitting with them. It's telling them in time, if you feel, I love you, I'm going to work with you, you're safe here. These are the kind of things that these individuals need. Again, it's not one size fits all. And a lot of people will come come in, you know, kind of very uh, resistant or, or somewhat skeptical as to what you're going to do or what's going to happen. But when they feel that you're a real person and you're really there to, to help them uncover and deal with, it creates a different environment. And you know this because you've done this work. Amen. Uh, yes, it does create an absolutely different environment. In fact, I've had guys tell me, you know, you're the first person that's ever worked with me that didn't talk down to me. Oh, God, yes. You oh, know. my God. This is exactly right. That you, you treated them as a human being, as an equal. Yeah. Remember, most, most people that come into therapy, they don't feel good about themselves. Remember, we're talking about the self, not the subconscious or, right. you know, not the, nothing other than their sense of self, who they are. And, um, and that's what we're dealing with here. And most of these senses of self are deeply wounded, and we have to deal with the wounds. You know, the most powerful thing that I, one of the most powerful things that I do is when we get down to the nitty-gritty, I'll have my patients write a letter to the abuser. And now I have a whole stack of letters, which I'm thinking about writing my next book using these letters. And these are the shame, you know, these, these are the letters where a, a pace, where an individual says, I assert, my, I assert my healthy self. How dare you? How dare you do this to me? Hmm. And when they can do that, now they've got the adult head, head on, not the child, not the wounded child, but the, the, the healthy head. Remember, the wounded child never feels good enough. They always feel less than, and they always feel broken. And those are, those are catchphrases. Those are the key phrases. I never feel good enough about myself, myself, my sense of self. So when they have them assert themselves, pen and paper, what comes out is so powerful. I look at these letters, Monty, and I just, you know, I beam. Part My heart breaks because they had to go through it. But I beam that they're able to, for the first time in their life, say, this is who I am, and how dare you? You bet. You bet. And let me ask you, do you find, <clears throat> excuse me, do you find that, that a large majority of people that are dealing with this toxic shame, that, that a great deal of it comes from sexual abuse of some kind? Without question. You know, they're always, uh, they're abuses to the sense of self. You know, a father hits the kid, the boy or the girl in the face. Uh, somebody sexually abuses a child. You see, what happens is children are not being treated. These children are not being treated as humans. They're being treated as objects. And when you objectify a child like that and take your power trip on these children, these children never feel empowered as adults. They still feel like a wounded child. And, and so we want to help empower uh, my people. We want to help them get to be the best, as I say, the best version of themselves and to stop living a shadow existence of what their true self could be. And they never get to see it because they're never really strutting their stuff. They're always protecting themselves in some important way for fear that they're going to be hurt again or beat or somehow put down or feel, again, less than. You know, it's it's that that statement that we tell ourselves in recovery so often uh, when we come to the fifth step, for instance, where we're we're spilling our guts 
and we're saying to ourselves, I know I went through this, was, you know, I'm going to tell you all this stuff, but if you really knew who I was, you'd run. So I'm not going to disclose this, this, and this. Exactly. You know, and, and, and that, that is so sad. Let me, let me ask you, do you... Well, find, that's, but let me just, let me, can I yes. qualify that? Yeah, you bet. That's a, isn't that a fear-based statement? Ryan? Absolutely. Isn't that a fear-based statement? If you really knew who I was, you'd abandon me. Yes. Just like everybody else has abandoned me in my, in my history. Yes. And that's fear. And that fear is, is, is it, it, it is so uh, negative. It is so, you know, it, 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 it's crippling is what it is. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's totally crippling. Do, do you find that it is, it is more difficult for men to disclose uh, yes. abuse than women? Yes, because in our culture, men are supposed to be strong. Right? Right. In our culture, there's an image of how men are supposed to be. But when you look at it, when you look at it, if, if most first-year marriages, 50% of first-year marriages or all marriages end in divorce, many little boy, many boy children are growing up without a direct role model in the home. Right. So many of these boys are growing up with, with, with an abstraction of a role, you know, a belief of what the role is without a direct model. And so many times these little little boys are, you know, um, overwhelmed by their role responsibilities and really don't understand what it's like to be uh, human. Girls, on the other hand, have typically a, a female to model their behavior their behavior mm-hmm. direct. So they don't have, they don't have the same issues as boys do in our culture. That that that's right because because I you know we, you and I talked about it before. Uh, you know, back in the day, back, 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 back in the day, uh, you know, before the before wars broke out and so forth, the, the dads were stay, were at home. They were at home working in the fields with their sons. Their sons were learning how to operate machinery and and, uh, you know, work on the farm and, and uh, actually was alongside dad when he opened up his first small business. And and then we started demanding um, time from dad and dad wasn't home anymore. Right. And, 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 you know, one of the, one of the, um, one of the, there's a series of commercials out there that just anger me to no end. And it's, uh, one of them is, um, I think it's an insurance commercial and the guy's on the phone. It's like three in the morning and the guy's on the phone talking to the insurance agent and the wife comes down and she goes, Oh, who are you talking to? And he right. goes, it's Jake from State Farm. That's what it is, State Farm commercial. Jake from State Farm. She goes, oh, really? And what is he wearing, Jake from State Farm? She's automatically accusing him of having an affair over the phone. And there's, oh, she's assuming. She's assuming. Assuming that he is, in, you know, he's breaking their vow. Right. <laughs> the other one, the other one is uh, a, a lady is on the computer and she goes, I don't believe it. And he, the husband comes around the corner and he starts to admit that he's been cruising the internet un- inappropriately. But before he actually gets it out, she reveals that it's an insurance company she's looking up. And right, it, it, right. It, it's we're we're putting men in these roles, and and I'm thinking, no wonder kids are confused. Right, right. It's crazy. It's <laughs> crazy. Yeah, we. You know, there's a lot of distrust in the world. And again, everything that you and I, Monty, are talking about has to do 
fundamentally with lack of trust. And, yeah. you know, somehow it's been taken out of us that, you know, maybe we shouldn't trust. Maybe we should look at things, you know, spuriously and, 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 and question everything. I, I kind of think that's a really hard way to live. It's a really difficult way to live. But, you know, when, when, when a children don't have that sense of trust because it's been breached or broken or violated, uh, and they never learn how to self-soothe and never develop effective ways of relating with, other, with, with oneself and especially with others. Wow. They don't have that sense of self-compassion, and they certainly can't have compassion for others. And what, what I find more than anything else is oftentimes these folks have a lot of judgments. They make more judgments than they do sharing of feelings. And I think that uh, we can't get to a true key to relationship with judgments. We have to have honesty. We have to have compassion for self and others. And we, we have to learn what it means to be present. Because, again, many of these, these folks in 12-step are not present. They're constantly waiting for, quote, the other shoe to fall, yeah. or for something to happen, or it's a, just a negative anticipation because, again, they don't have a lot of trust in their life. Right. And I think that that's, that's a real problem that we have to uh, address, not only in therapy, but I think it's a, it's a, it's a cultural problem as well. And, and all this negative self-talk, you know, I mean, you know, yeah. I, I, you know I, I understand identifying yourself as an alcoholic in an AA meeting. I, I get that. You wanna, sure. You're trying to identify with the newcomer and so forth. But doggone it, my allergic reaction to alcohol is not what defines me. No, no, of course not. No, that's just, you know, uh, I think we all, some of us have uh, problems, you know, it's kind of like having uh, an allergy, if you will. You know, we all don't process sugar the same. We all don't process alcohol the same. Right. And it may not just be a function of early life abuse, trauma, neglect, all of the things that we're talking about, the early life uh, traumas. It could very well be that we just biologically or physiologically uh, don't don't process don't do it, it. Wasn't, right? Yeah, don't process uh, alcohol or sugar very well. Yeah, yeah. So I don't want. I don't. I'm diabetic, but I don't run around town with a big sign on my chest that says, you know, don't feed the bear. He's diabetic. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you, you, you know, and I understand you can't fix what you don't acknowledge, but but let's yeah. move, let's move on from there. You know, absolutely, yeah. absolutely, yeah. You know, and I think a big part of moving on has to do with self forgiveness. That that's one of the things we learn in treatment. You know, forgiving oneself for sins not committed. You know, uh, the, the, I, I've mentioned this here before in the movie Goodwill Hunting when 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 Robin Williams puts his arms around Matt Damon, and I don't know. I, I, when I saw it, I just broke down and cried. Mm. When, when Robin Williams says to Matt, Matt Damon, it's not your fault. Even now, as I'm talking to you, I can feel, you know, I can feel it. You know, it's not your fault. <laughs> that sense of self-forgiveness, mm-hmm. forgiving yourself for crimes you didn't commit. And how many people in this world today labor under the false illusion that they're responsible for their early trauma? It's just so painful to me as a practicing therapist and an author, that I, I, I see this. And, and, and you know, it, what it does is it, 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 it sends me further into my, my passion and my belief that 
people, we do need to be the best version of ourselves that we can be, all of us. And wherever we find folks that are suffering, we need to be out there helping them. Yeah, and I you... I mean, like Mother Teresa, but I mean... Yeah. Be able to open up and say, look, I can appreciate that. I feel the same way. You know, and, and I... Gollies, I, I keep thinking about how adults will try to involve their children in adult issues, and, and, and <laughs> it's such... It, it's tragic. It is. You know, we have a word for that. We call it parentification, where a parent treats the child like an adult. And, you know, I know that's instinctively wrong. Yeah. Fundamentally wrong. You don't, you don't engage and, and bring a child into the, uh, the adult's crisis or whatever the marital issues or whatever it is. You, you know, bet. Children have to see the parents as, as strong and as protectors. Otherwise, a child doesn't feel protected. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're almost out of time, so I want you to talk to the listeners about the ease of this book. Now, I, I can just say for myself, this isn't a huge book that's big enough to choke a mule that you may be carrying around when you're majoring in psychology on campus. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, is this book pretty uh, pretty user-friendly for the clinician okay. as well as— book is written. Yeah, you yeah. know, after I wrote it, we 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 sanitized it a bit. <laughs> the, my editorial staff or, and my publisher, we said we, it's it's for the public as well as for practicing therapists. But anyone who picks up this book, and including all my patients are reading it now, and on the feedback I'm getting, not only from my patients but all over the country, actually all over the world, is it's phenomenal because people are getting it. You know, I'm that guy that wants people to understand what I'm saying. So I try not to be in the ivory tower. You know, I was trained in that, but it's not where life lives. You know, yeah. life lives with the everyday, and, and this book is for the everyday. There will be parts, I have patients that are rereading it, different parts two and three times just to understand it, get to get it. Oh, they can read the words, but when they relate it to themselves, they're going, oh, my God. And so I think that uh, anybody who picks up this book, and reads it, will get something from it that will relate to who they are. Because, first of all, who's going to pick up a book on shame if they're not feeling something about that or thinking something about sure. that? But the goal of my book, and this is for your listeners, is to take the shame out of shame and to make it fundamentally known that we all have the components for shame in our brain, but it's how we live our life that determines how happy or unhappy we are at any moment in time. And I think that's the important and most relevant piece that I want, you know, my readers to get and your listeners to get as well, that this is, this is a fundamental part of life that we haven't allowed to be looked at. If you look at TV today, Monty, every other word seems to be shame. There's so much of this, the term shame in in the vernacular, in in, in our world today, and it plays such an important part that we have to understand what it really means. Yeah, and you know, we, we, we try to cover it up with comedy. I mean, there's so many sitcoms out there that the whole basis for the sitcom is putting somebody down. Right. And, 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 and we laugh it off, but it's not funny anymore. It just isn't. No, at, at a certain point, it's shaming again. Yeah. At, at a real point, it, it's telling people that they're not good enough that they're less than, less than and, and it's just not a healthy way of living. It's not a healthy way of being. And I don't think, you know, growing up, my, you know what my, my dad used to say? 
and this is, uh, you know, he'd say a lot of things, but one thing that he said to his, he said, Jerry, you, you don't put somebody else's light, you don't diminish somebody else's light to make yours brighter. Mm. Never do that. And that is a salient part of who I am and how I kind of live my life or try to live my life. You know, it's a goal. I don't always reach it. Right. I'm never out there trying to intentionally shame anybody because I am so sensitive to what that really means, you know, personally and professionally. Because when I learned about shame, it was transformative. I, I'm able to communicate with myself in such a positive way now that I was never able to do before because I feel myself as a viable entity in this, entity in this world, and I, and I kind of like myself. I'm not that narcissistic guy, but I like who sure. I am. Sure. Sure. So it makes it a lot easier to communicate with who I am. Yeah. Yeah. I had a pa- I had a pastor tell me one time, he said, Do you know you you know God loves you, right? I said, Well yeah. And he goes, Do you know that he likes you? And I thought, you know, I've never I've never even considered that. Exactly. Wow. That that's yeah. pow- that's powerful. <laughs> yeah. The the book is The Science of Shame and Its Treatment, uh, authored by my guest, Dr. Gerald. Fishkin, and uh, you can get a copy of this book on uh, by going to Amazon. Uh, you can get a copy of this book by going. Can, can they get a copy by going to your website? They can get it through my website. They can get it through Amazon.com. It's on digital version as well as soft cover. Uh, they can go to you know drgeraldfishkin.com, uh, or they can call eight one eight hundred six two one two seven three six. And that's my distributor, the University of Chicago Press Distribution Center in Chicago. They will send it out immediately. Well, Doctor, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. Uh, I appreciate it. I know so many of my listeners have, possibly for the very first time, they're hearing this whole thing on shame. It's amazing to me how much we don't know in a world where we think we know it all. Exactly. And I think that... Um, this is it plays such a, a primary role in who we are and how we are that it's it, we can't deny it anymore. And I think you're going to see this out there more and more. Uh, the how, how we look at shame and discuss and talk about shame and and really deal with it because you know it it, it, it emanates from that early uh, relationship at home uh, or how a child is raised. And I think that this should open up the eyes of parents and teachers and 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 uh you know religious folks and, and all people yeah that we have to t- treat our children with respect and dignity and love love and and uh and help them if they're having trauma try to get to the root of it immediately so that they don't labor with this their entire life so here's my challenge to all you pastors priests rabbis uh, spiritual leaders, spiritual advisors, Native American folks uh, who are in leadership, what, whatever it is that you do do to help people spiritually is come out from behind your pulpits and your lecterns, come down to the level with the rest of us, get this book, and start beginning to understand the science of shame. Uh, I guarantee you that it will definitely help uh, your position in in whatever role you're playing, wherever you're playing it. Um, But it most definitely will be of a major benefit to the people you work with and counselors too, counselors and therapists. If you haven't got a hold of this book, you really need to have this in your library, The Science of Shame 
and its treatment by Dr. Gerald Fishkin, Ph.D. Thanks again, my friend. Uh, I appreciate you being on. Monty, it's always a pleasure. I look forward to speaking with you again and, and your audience. Thank you so much for having me today. You, you bet. Now, don't hang up. I'm going to bring you back on the regular phone after we close out the show. Okay. Uh, folks, folks uh, Gerald Fishkin has been uh, our, our guest. If you have any questions, uh, you can follow the links on uh, our page, and you can email him. Please get a copy of this book. Listen, our email address, our email email address is take12radio at comcast.net. You can listen to us on YouTube, on LinkedIn, on Google+, Plus, well, all of that stuff, that crazy Internet stuff and world. Until our next broadcast, this is the Monty Man, and I'm wishing God's perfect serenity for you. Bye-bye now. This has been a broadcast of KHLT Recovery Broadcasting.